Uh, so it dawned on me uh, just a couple days ago. Uh, this Sunday is, uh, what's the right way to put it? Uh, our, this is the third, the end of the third year of Amy and I being called as your pastor. So it was three years ago next Sunday that we started. So this is like the conclusion of our third year. And so, of course, I did some math. That's what you do when you come up on a time like that as you do some math, right? Did you know uh, we have spent 40% of our time here meeting on Zoom? I mean, that's like a pretty big number in the course of three years, right? 40% of all of our Sundays have been spent on Zoom, 63 of our 157 Sundays together. Uh, and that the way in which that was divvied up, you know, obviously we had like a full year of being on Zoom, and then there was another like the wave of Omicron, right, that pushed us back for a short time onto Zoom. Uh, means that like we haven't actually had the opportunity yet to do this for a full year like just to meet together on Sunday morning we haven't even had a full year to do that without the interruptions of COVID and meeting on Zoom I don't know how many other people would have started pastoral ministry six months before COVID fell upon us <laughs> but that is an interesting uh, way to look at the last three years together so I don't know if it actually connects to that or not, but I wanted to start off uh, with a question this morning. What do you look back on as the biggest missed opportunity of your life? Let's think about your life. What do you look back on as one of the biggest missed opportunities? Maybe it was the opportunity that you had in 1982 to buy Apple stock for four cents. That would have been a missed opportunity given what Apple stock has done since 1982. Maybe you look back and you think, you just ask yourself, what would have happened if I would have taken that other major in college? Or what if I have taken a different career path or taken that other job opportunity that I didn't take? Uh, this I especially hate. Have you ever like received an invitation to go somewhere and you're like, eh, I don't know. Not sure how that's going to go, or maybe it's going to cost a little bit. And then, like, the reports come back, and you're like, oh, that would have been one of the most epic experiences of my life if I just said yes to doing that thing. I hate it when that happens, when I miss those kinds of opportunities. Do you consider it a missed opportunity that you didn't date that other girl or that other guy? Don't look across too much. Amy doesn't regret that. She's fine. Don't worry about that. Don't dwell on that idea too long. Uh, speaking of Amy, I'll tell you a quick story about um, a missed opportunity. I don't think I've shared this story before about Amy and I. So after I graduated, uh, finished my master's degree at Fuller in Pasadena, uh, I then took a job uh, at Fuller working in an academic program, something called the Master of Arts in Global Leadership. And one of the students I was responsible for was named Amy Garrington. That little lady right there. And Amy lived in Indiana at the time and was doing a degree from a distance, and she would come to campus occasionally, and uh, we kind of had eyes for each other. Uh, one of us maybe had more eyes for the other than the other. I'm just kidding. Of course, that was me. Um, but we, like, just kind of never really had an opportunity um, to get together for one reason or another. Then, unbeknownst to each other, I made the decision 
to end my job at Fuller and move back across the country, back here to Ohio, for time to be near uh, my family. At the same time, Amy was making a decision to leave Indiana and come to campus and finish her last year on Fuller's campus in Pasadena. I didn't know she was doing that. She didn't know I was leaving. It just so happens <laughs> that Amy's mom drove her across the country to move into her new apartment uh, to finish her degree on Fuller's campus the, same, the day before I was leaving. And just coincidentally, they got there in time to come to my going away party. Can you imagine that? So here it is, my uh, future wife that I didn't know at that point just is moving to where I live. <laughs> at the same time, I am moving away to the other side of the country. And I feel like that, that was just this. Now, I'm really glad for the journey that God has had us on since then. But I wonder, what would that of opportunity have been like? What would that opportunity have been like if I had stayed and we had been together? So much of our lives are about making decisions based on the perceived value or the benefit in the moment, right? All the time we have to make these decisions and we're always weighing, what's the value here? What's the benefit of making this decision over this decision? And hindsight, as they say, is 2020. So I wonder this morning, how does this fact of life intersect with our relationship with God? How does this fact of our lives that we're constantly trying to make decisions based on the perceived value and benefit how does that mesh up with our life with God? So as I did a couple weeks ago, what I actually want to do this morning is call our attention to the appointed gospel passage for the day, which is Luke 14, 25 to 33. And if you look there, if you want to look there with a heading that most of us would see in that selection of scripture is the cost of being a disciple, the cost of being a disciple from Luke 14, 25 to 33. Discipleship, incidentally, was one of the key words in the title of my doctoral dissertation. I have no intention of trying to give you my doctoral dissertation here this morning. You can rest easy. I simply wanted to mention that discipleship has been a very important topic of mine, uh, a very important topic for me for a long time. So we're going to get to Luke 14, but as we did a couple weeks ago, what we need to do first is look at the Old Testament passage that was appointed for this morning so that we can have some of the necessary context. So uh, let me read. This is from Deuteronomy uh, 30. I want to read this passage to us this morning. Uh, Moses is saying to the Israelites, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you're not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. 
and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You and I have a precarious relationship with laws, do we not? I'm guessing that, like me, you tend to be a fan of laws that seem really instinctual for you. They just make sense. We tend to be wary of laws that feel overly constrictive or burdensome, that are based on our own personal preferences or simply don't favor us and our interests in some way. I think we tend to feel that way because, as Americans, we tend to prize freedom and autonomy. This is something our culture inclines us to prize above many other things, freedom and autonomy. Some prize it so much that we might even call it an idol, an idol, which is just anything that we would sacrifice greatly for in order to protect. And yet most of us, if we're honest, would agree, I think, that laws themselves serve a very important role, have an important place in our lives and in the world. And so here in Deuteronomy, what Moses is seeking to convey to the people of Israel is that the laws that God gave them, they don't just serve a purpose. <laughs> they actually serve the ultimate purpose. Like Moses is telling the Israelites, the laws that are, God is giving you today, these are the most important things for you to know. He says, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I've set before you. Life in the laws, death apart from them, blessings in them, curses apart from them. And he says, now choose life. And so there is just no equivocating here in Mos on Moses' part. He's trying to tell the Israelites in no uncertain terms, God has amazing plans for you. Like he has had this promise with your ancestors for a long time, and he is about to lead you into this promised land. But that is not guaranteed. God doing that isn't a guarantee. Moses is saying to the Israelites, if you want access to these promises and what God is leading you into, this is the way, following these laws. And if you steer off course, you're going to regret it because there's going to be really grave consequences. Now here is a really important note for us to get this morning, is that Moses isn't talking about punishment as we might typically think of it. Like someone telling you that they're going to punch you if you take their food. That's not the kind of thing that Moses is talking about. It's more like telling a toddler that there's going to be painful consequences if they touch a hot stove. You're not going to hit a toddler if that toddler disobeys you. If you would, please come talk to me. You shouldn't do that to a toddler. But it's fully appropriate for you to tell a toddler, it's going to hurt you if you touch that hot stove. God only wants good things for those created in his image, for you and for I. He doesn't need to be appeased. He's not walking around with a big stick looking to whack someone if they disobey him. That's not in God's demeanor. He is a loving father. God is our loving father who says, I want the absolute best for you, and because I do, I'm going to tell you exactly how to live in order to receive it. 
So that's the super important perspective that we need to have going all the way back to the Old Testament as we come to our gospel passage in Luke this morning. Let me read these verses for us. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever doesn't carry their cross, follow me, cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. This is some of Jesus' most straightforward teaching on the call to discipleship. And it's really important we should take note of who he's addressing. Luke tells us right at the top of this passage that who he was addressing were these large crowds that were following him from wherever, right? These large crowds that had massed and were following Jesus around, which is pretty interesting, right? That this would be Jesus's message to these large crowds who were following him. They think that like the MO, the modus operandi of the American church, by and large, tends to be to do and say things in the nicest and easiest possible terms in order to gain a hearing by as many people as possible, right? The last thing in the world we want to do is to try to like scare people off to say nice, easy things. But that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is speaking to these crowds and saying some really hard things. He flips that strategy on its head. He's using strong, hyperbolic, emotionally charged language to try and get his point across. This is like an introduction to Christianity at its deep end. I was thinking about that, and man, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard this story now, but I think about the story, y'all have probably heard it as well, about Mitch Sauer's first Sunday here at First Church of the Resurrection, right? That he's just meandering around. And it was your mom, right, Helen? Your mom who grabs him (laughs) and pulls him in and says, what's your name? I don't care. Go over here. Start teaching in the Sunday school class with these boys. I mean, she just pulled him right into the deep end. Mitch loves to tell that story. Dallas Willard uh, is a name you've heard me mention before. I think he helps us to see the results of not following following Jesus' example when he says this in one of his books. This is a quote by Dallas. For at least several decades, the churches of the Western world have not made discipleship a condition of being a Christian. One is not required to be or to intend to be a disciple in order to become a Christian. And one may remain a Christian without any signs of progress toward or in discipleship. Contemporary American churches in particular do not require following Christ in his example, spirit, and teachings as a condition of membership, either of entering into 
or continuing in fellowship of a denomination or a local church. I would be glad to learn of any acceptance of this claim, but it would only serve to highlight its general validity and make the general rule more glaring. This is the key point. If you haven't, if you got confused by any of that, this is the key point. So far as the visible Christian institutions of our day are concerned, discipleship clearly is optional. But discipleship for Jesus was not optional. We might have invented a version of Christianity where we think that it's one thing to get saved and another thing to become a disciple. But for Jesus, that dichotomy is patently nonsensical. Like, it doesn't even make sense. It would, like, it would be like believing that someone could be born but not breathe. It is the breathing that makes the living possible. And it is following Jesus as his disciples that is definitive for what it means to be a Christian. As Moses sought to impress upon the Israelites that their journey into the promised land would come through their obedience to God's laws and decrees, Jesus is doing something similar. He's trying to convey to the crowds that are following him that the salvation that he offers, the life that he wants them to know, can only be accessed through the path of discipleship. There's no other way to get it. There's no other access point to what Jesus is offering us. The only way into it, the only path there is available, is the path of discipleship. So I pointed out before, if we were to open up our Bibles this morning and read this portion of Scripture, most of us would likely find this heading, the cost of being a disciple. And there's certainly a way in which that's true to what we see here. There are real sacrifices to be made in following Jesus. And there are real allegiances and ties that we have to surrender if we're going to be truly devoted to Jesus and his ways. We shouldn't minimize that in any way. But I want, I think it would be more in keeping with Jesus and what he's trying to teach us here to actually call this section of scripture the cost of non-discipleship. The cost of non-discipleship. Because in actuality, the point, the entire point of the passage is that as long as we think that anyone or anything may really be of more value, be more important than Jesus and his life in the kingdom, what we do is we cut ourselves off from that which is of ultimate importance and of incomparable value. That's what Jesus is trying to save us from. This is what Jesus is, there's the really short two parables, right, at the end of this selection of scripture. This is what he's on about. There's one about a guy who sets out to build a tower, but he doesn't have enough money. And then there's another about a king who's thinking about going to war with half the troops that the other king has. Those are stories about fools. <laughs> fools who try to build something that they don't have the capacity to complete. And fools who are thinking about rushing into a war that would be uh, just foolish for them to rush into. And Jesus is saying it would be the most foolish thing in the world to suppose that any sacrifice isn't worth what would be gained in following Jesus as his disciple. Like this is the foolishness that he's trying to save us from. So like I said before, there are real costs involved in following Jesus as his disciple. 
because to do so may cause ruptures in our relationships with other people. It might bring about suffering. It might bring about persecution. It might bring about a lack of esteem in the eyes of the world. But friends, I just want to impress on us this morning that Jesus' point is that it's non-discipleship. Jesus would have us believe that non-discipleship yields far greater losses and comes with far greater cost. Another quote from Dallas. He says, non-discipleship costs abiding peace. Who doesn't want that? (laughs) It costs a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, he says, non-discipleship costs you exactly the abundance of life that Jesus says he came to bring. So does Jesus literally want us to hate our fathers and mothers, our spouses and children, our brothers and sisters? Of course not. Like I hope by now we've learned to read a passage like that and go, wait a second, Jesus is not a jerk. He's doing something else here. He means to open us up to the reality that the blood ties of individual earthly families are but a symbol of the one true family that's being created by his own blood that we sang about this morning. That our individual families are a symbol, a shadow of the family of God that's being created in Jesus' blood. Does Jesus actually want us to hate our own lives? Of course not. He created us. He loves us. He doesn't want us to hate our own lives. He wants us to see that our lives find their ultimate value. Our lives find their true significance as we lay them down in submission to the one who created us, the one in whose image we are made. Discipleship absolutely involves sacrifice and devotion, which seems costly from this individual and temporary point of view that you and I are very accustomed to. But Jesus' entire life and ministry was aimed at saving people from such a small and narrow way of seeing the world. We might think about it like this. In a world stuck in endless cycles of violence, discipleship to Jesus frees us to embrace a call to peacemaking. In a world that mandates that we always look out for number one, discipleship to Jesus encourages us to delight in putting others before ourselves. In a world that inclines us to live in fear, fear of suffering or sickness or fear of other people, those horrible fill-in-the-blank, discipleship to Jesus releases us to live in the perfect love and care of God. It drives out all fear. In a world that reinforces our instincts to rely on ourselves for all that we might need, discipleship to Jesus creates communities that rejoice in meeting one another's needs. 
in a world fixated on what can be seen and touched and quantified and controlled. Discipleship to Jesus opens us up to the realm of the Spirit that is totally beyond our comprehension. So just hearing those things, and how many more could we list? I just want us to think for a moment. What are we giving up? What is anyone giving up? What are we surrendering to? What is the cost of not making a decision to follow Jesus as his disciple? All of that, all of those things that I just mentioned there, those are sort of like the particular substance of what we see when we zoom in on the big picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus is about, which is that Jesus, God the Son, lived and lives in an unbroken relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. That Jesus came to earth, lived, taught, died, and was raised to new life to bring us, you and I, and all of creation back into that same unbroken relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Like, that's where Jesus lived in that unbroken relationship. This is what he wants for us, <laughs> to live in perfect, loving, harmony, uh, peaceful, abundant life with the triune God in whose image we are created. And discipleship to Jesus is the path that we follow to live in that place. Like, if you want to know the way to live there, discipleship is the way to live in that place, to live in that relationship. So it's in that light. <laughs> it's not the costs that we see that, it's not the costs of discipleship that are weighty. Though they are. There's real sacrifices and real devotion there. It's actually the costs of non-discipleship that are truly weighty. For in non-discipleship, we sacrifice the very purpose of our existence. And it's that purpose that connects us to everything and to every one in the ways that God intended. So just two questions for us to ponder this morning as I wrap up and then as we respond to these texts and this word in prayer and around the Lord's table. The first is this. I started out by asking you if you look back on your life, are there opportunities that you think that you might have missed? But what about this question? What sacrifices might you be making right now in terms of the abundant life that God has for you by not placing discipleship to Jesus above all else? Does that question make sense? Can you just ponder for a moment, like what might you actually be giving up right now because you're allowing other allegiances and devotions and loves to take the place of Jesus in your life? Like what more might God have for you? if you were to take a further step in discipleship to Jesus. And here's the second one. How has God positioned you to invite someone else to consider becoming Jesus' disciple in some way? Like in your neighborhood or in your family or in your networks of friends, in the chance encounters that you have at different times. How has God positioned you to invite someone else to consider becoming Jesus' disciple in some way. 
in, just even in some small way. And I just want to leave us with this idea this morning, that the most loving thing that you and I could ever do for anyone else is to figure out a way, an, an appropriate way, to say, have you ever considered following Jesus as his disciple? That is the most loving thing that we could ever do for someone else because of what that relationship makes possible, because of what Jesus says that he promises us if we will follow him. Now, like Jesus, like we should be really quick to say, it's not like all roses, right? That there's actually really real sacrifices to be made in this. But if we take Jesus at his word, it's actually the cost of not following Jesus as his disciple that are really weighty and really costly. So as we ponder those questions together this morning, let me pray for us. Father, thank you um, for your love and your grace. Jesus, thank you that you're willing to speak very plainly and truthfully about the earthly costs that are involved in following you as your disciples. But I thank you even more for the kind of abundant life that you hold out to us. The rich rewards that are ours. Why should we gain from your reward? Why should we gain from your reward? And yet by your grace, we do. You've promised us an abundant life and that the path towards accessing that abundant life is in following you as a disciple. And so, God, would you show us this morning where in our lives are we sacrificing that abundant life because of something that's taking your place? And would you, God, also show us where you have positioned us and placed us, where we have relationships with other people that in the right way, at the right time, in a way that makes sense for the other person, you might be willing and able to use us to extend an invitation uh, to invite others to know you and follow you as a disciple into the abundant life that you promise. Speak to us, God, uh, about those questions this morning and lead us further into your love and care. In Christ's name.